Um, I'm Don Thompson. I work at uh, Global Health Outreach, the short-term medical missions arm for Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Uh, brief commercial plug, we have uh, uh, quite a bit of involvement across the medical and dental field and public policy and missions and developing the next generation. Anyone in here not a member of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations? Good. You are my targets. Um, we have uh, more than a few booths in, in the uh, first floor of the exhibit hall. We'd love to see you down there. I'm uh, going to talk this morning about um, spiritual formation and short-term healthcare teams. We're going to do a little bit of audience response. It's going to be anonymous, so nobody has to raise their hand and, and, uh, and hold back. Um, our goals in global health outreach are, are uh, behind me. Uh, we focus a lot on disciple-making, so spiritual formation is very important to us. Has anyone in here never been outside the uh, U.S. or Canada on, a, on any kind of a medical missions trip? Okay, we see at least one hand, so that means um, I know where you've been, Brenda. So you've been across cultures. That's actually a country, it? it is. It is. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk quite a bit about uh, spiritual formation, both if you're involved in leading teams or putting together teams, or if you are a demanding customer because you're going to go on a team, you want to. Be very selective uh, with whom you go to to uh, make sure that they are addressing some of these issues. Uh, a few disclaimers. I think CME is offered for this uh, talk. That means there's paperwork to be filled out afterward. Uh, if you have any complaints, my name is Ron Brown. <laughs> that's, that's Ron. Yeah, he's taking all complaints. Um, so uh, we're not going to be talking about drugs. Um, I do um, like to hunt, and I have a wolf blanket, and that will come more clear in, in a little while. But when you're talking about any kind of missions, uh, you've got lots of questions. You've got quite a few algorithmic choices. Are you going to go long-term? Are you going to go short-term? Are you going to do a missions focus that's more on preaching? Are you going to do something that's more focused on service? For those of us who are medics, are you going to work in a hospital or are you going to try to work in an outpatient setting? Do you want to do community development work? Do you want to do uh, disease treatment work? Just lots of, different, lots of different choices that you have to, uh, you have to determine. Um, I'm not going to talk about any of these. I'm going to talk about the spiritual aspect of, of doing missions. The discussion of, of uh, spiritual formation, of spir the spiritual aspect of missions is relevant to all of those different kinds that I uh, – that I just mentioned. So I'm going to start with the principles, and then those can be applied in, in any specific setting. Our focus is going to primarily be in this talk on the person who goes. The other half, the other half of this talk, which I'm not going to give, is focusing on the people with whom we will partner. So if you want to hear that talk, then come talk to me, and we'll come up with a time where I'll put something together, and we can we can cover that. But this focus is going to be on you, the goer, or you, the sender. It's going to be on the, the people who are making up the team. Now, we heard last night a little bit more of an exposition of uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The goal is making disciples, uh, is disciple-making. That's the, the – you don't have to read between the lines to find uh, descriptions of this overall goal – Disciple-making includes three main things. It includes evangelism, it includes church planting, and then it includes equipping believers in those, those new churches. You need to give them tools, 
to study the Bible, you need to give tools for people to grow in their faith. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 specifically mentions a few nuggets that are important in, in disciple making. Of course, going and then baptizing and then teaching. Those are all methods to make disciples. So if you're going to be a disciple maker, then you must be equipped to make disciples. You must be able to, uh, you must have personal growth in your own spiritual life. That is absolutely essential. So back to spiritual formation. That's why we're talking about all of this. So all missions, any kind of missions that you're going to do, if you want to be consistent with the scriptures, you have to focus on disciple-making. There are a few other things involved. If you're doing medical missions, oh, by the way, there's medicine, there's surgery, there's dentistry. If you're doing community development, sure, there's a lot of other things that you've got to learn. But if you're not doing disciple-making, then um, Malachi chapter 1 may apply to you on the negative aspect. And that's about profaning the Lord's table. So um, I'm, I left my two-by-four at home, so we won't go there today. So we're going to talk positively about, about uh, uh, spiritual, spiritual formation. Long-term effectiveness, though, in, in uh, disciple-making, it involves exposing the unreached to the gospel. So there's several things, exposing the unreached, exposing them to the gospel, in a setting that's conducive to their recognition of their need for the Savior. You've got to be able to talk. You've got to be able to talk to the unreached, and you've got to make sure that the message is conducive to their recognition of their need for the Savior. Look at Matthew 25, the second half of Matthew 25, the last verse or two where Christ is talking about, if you, as you did this to the least of these, it's the same as doing it unto me. talks quite a bit about um, compassion, about uh, um, meeting people's physical needs as you meet spiritual needs. So this requires sensitivity to a lot of things, to the culture, to the language, to family settings, to social settings, to the spiritual environment where you're working. And I'll tell you, it's different. Every place we go, we're involved in 25 countries, and it's different in every one of those countries. It's a lot of fun to figure it out, but it's different. Some cultures, it's very appropriate to express emotions. Have you ever been, does anybody in here have Dutch ancestry? Do you express emotions when you're in with a Dutchman? No, you don't. They're very staid and solid. And then there are other cultures where expressing emotions is a little bit more acceptable. Some of us in some cultures have something like this that we wear called a watch. In other cultures, you might as well leave this at home before you ever go. Um, How comfortable are you with uncertainty? How comfortable is your partner in another country with uncertainty? Um, individualism goes a lot with uncertainty. So where you're coming from and where you're going, two very different things. So you have to have that sensitivity. Now, effective exposure to the gospel in that particular culture, that may require many years of earning the right to be heard. Setting up a podium on a street corner may work in Hyde's Park in London, but I suggest that it will be effective in few areas where where we're working, at least right now, in unre- with unreached people groups. So effective exposure 
providing effective exposure to the gospel requires a degree of cultural intelligence, and it requires developing the message and the messenger, and that ought to be you. We'll talk more about that in a minute, uh, in such a way to be effective. The cultural intelligence requires preparation, which requires commitment. If it's important, it's going to take time. Now, long-term workers typically have more commitment. They have more time. They have more of a focus on developing these these skill sets. Um, may go to college, Bible college, may go to seminary, may take training in community development, may do a master's in public health, take language training, take experience, uh, or, or have a certain degree of experience. I've had a few a few years in different settings um, in in the uh, U.S. and in other countries that allow me to look at things a little bit differently than I have sometime in the past. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'd be glad to talk off mic. Um, The short-term worker, on the other hand, needs to prepare and to travel and to work in a setting where there are experienced leaders who will fill in these gaps. If you have an inexperienced person, then you you need to be paired up with experienced people. So, So it's crucial to have that right degree of pairing. Now, what's the strategy? This this article was written a few years back in 1949 in the Christian Medical Society Journal. The first year that this journal was published, the third issue that came out, the first article was written by Eugene Nida, a linguist. He's not a not a not a medic at all. He was the president of the American, the secretary of the American Bible Society, and he he made some very good points, which still apply, and are still being misapplied today. Medicine can be the key to many aspects of the missionary advance, but a key only has value as far as it fits into a lock, and that has to be the proper lock. Medicine should be an instrument to unlock the complex antagonisms against the gospel, to allow deeper penetration into the life and needs in order that Christ may be made fully known to the world or to to the people. Look at that complex antagonisms. Have you ever met anyone who is antagonistic to the gospel? Have you met five people who are antagonistic to the gospel How many of those antagonisms were the same in all five of those people? It's probably different. So to use medicine to to unlock those complex antagonisms. A couple months ago, I was in another setting. I was seeing a couple who came in. They were both in their late 40s, and the gentleman had had, um, end-stage metastatic colon cancer. He had had liver metastases. He had a colectomy. He had a, he had a stoma. He had gone through two years, two and a half years of chemotherapy for his colon cancer. And um, he was uh, probably within a few months of dying. He came in for pain control. He was on some, a pretty good regimen of, of slow-release morphine with some Toradol to take in between for breakthrough uh, breakthrough. Um, pain, had uh, incredible leg swelling because of his portal hypertension, lots of, lots of issues. And um, we talked a little bit about pain control. His wife was with him. They had no children. 
which I, I started to feel out some of these other issues about their family. Do they have other people helping them? Um, and they have no children. It was just the two of them. And soon it was going to be just the one of her. So, so we talked about pain. We talked about uh, hope. We talked about um, impending death, which was, a, which was a tough transition to make. I said, now, you know that the chances of this being cured are pretty slim. And he, he nodded. He looked like he was already dead, frankly. He was, he was pasty. He had no color left. And, and yet he was alert. And, and uh, we talked about what – actually, I asked him, what's going to happen to your soul after you die? And he, he had no idea. He hadn't even considered that because that, that was my next question. I said, have you considered what's going to happen to your soul after you die? And I turned to her and asked her if, what she thought, what, what her, what her uh, thoughts were on what would happen after he died. And they just had not talked about that at all. They were, they were not – I don't think he was in denial that he was going to die, but they were not talking about it at all. And when you're within a month or two of dying, something that is gradual and is pretty clearly going to happen, there are some issues to discuss. There's some closure that needs to be, to be uh, gotten in a few very important areas, like what's going to happen after you die. So we talked about that, and we talked about it extensively. We talked about – what would happen? I said, now we're talking as if you're going to be the first one to die. I said that to him. But you, you two could walk out of here and walk up the street. And to her, I said, you could get hit by a car, and then you could die instantly, just like that. You may not have the luxury of the time to consider these questions. And, and I said, it may be that God has kept you alive this long and brought you in here today and brought us here today so that we could talk about this very important issue. And they were ready to talk about that. And um, we talked a bit more, and they both, um, they both realized that they had a God-shaped hole in their life, and they, both, uh, they no longer have that God-shaped hole in their life. We'll just leave it at that. So, so there was a complex antagonism. This is a very uh, communist-influenced part of the world, that uh, had been atheistic for at least the last 70 years. And so the natural thing was for them to just not talk about it. But we did. I could give you several other. Well, another one on that exact same trip, uh, a a woman named Raisa, who was in her late 40s, who had been beaten savagely by two previous husbands. She had been married uh, for 10 years before she dumped the guy after he beat her to a pulp, uh, divorced, married again, betrayed yet a second time by another husband. She was living at home with her 25-year-old daughter who was single and had a baby, and then her son who was out of a job. She works as a janitor at a, at a school. She had lots of fear, and she had lots of insecurity. She had lots of good reasons to have fear and insecurity, and I validated her fears because she had little to look forward to and little hope. But then by bringing in the aspect of relationships and that God wants her to be in relationship with him, but she can't be because there's, little, there's this little chasm called sin that you can't get across. And then that led into a more complete discussion of 
of uh, the gospel. And she, too, now knows the Savior. So complex antagonisms, they're different. We talked to nine different, I talked with to nine different people in that week. And eight of those nine uh, are going to be, they now have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Eight different ways of talking about what their antagonism was, but then bringing that right back to a relationship with the Savior. So medicine can be a key to that, but it's got to be a key. It's got to be used the right way, and it has to allow deeper penetration into the life and needs of people so that you can, so that you can facilitate making Christ fully known to them. Okay, so what's the mechanism? Now, there are a couple of different perspectives on, on uh, using medical care. Is the focus medical care or, or is the focus more evangelism? Uh, one perspective is that medical work is a humanitarian service that's given to men. The work's done in the name of Christ. The, work, the Christian witness is to practice the highest level of scientific medicine possible. Spiritual discussions are best left to the hospital chaplain or, or a missionary evangelist. And then there are people on the other. There's another perspective that really considers your patients as an audience for evangelism. And medicine is a gift of God to to be used to attract people to hear the preaching of the gospel and the hope of, uh, of inducing, of allowing, of facilitating conversion of uh, patients, with scientific medicine being the means to that end. So, so what do you think? Which one of those two, two is it? Is it really a humanitarian service or is it to evangelize patients? So get your phones out. And here's the phone number you text to. It's 650-515-3033, and you get your choice. And because there are a few of you who will not make a commitment, that would be my Canadian friends in the back row. Yes, thanks, Joy. Then there's something else. So, so what's your choice? Is it humanitarian service, or is it evangelized patients, or something else? So the, the body of your text is, is either 19566 or 67. Or six eight, so you tell us, and we will watch this as I sip coffee and you text your opinion six five zero five one five three zero three three, and then these are the three numbers one nine five six 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 seven or six eight. You can vote multiple times, but I would ask you not to. <laughs> if you don't get a good signal, you can use your friend's phone. Now, you have to dial the number. <laughs> and it's texting. It's not calling, by the way. It's texting. If you need help texting, are there any 12-year-olds in here? <laughs> this, this reminds me of a story that I had heard of uh, a medical missions camp that was set up, and you have the, the medics at one end seeing patients, and then they've got the line out the door, um, down the block, around the corner of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who want to be seen, and they're just churning and burning, seeing somebody every five minutes or two minutes, and, and they're getting all burned out. See, is anybody texting? Hmm. 
and it should be coming up automatically. It is on. It, it comes up. Uh, it's supposed to come up real time. But it might not. It worked yesterday. It worked this morning. Um, but then at the other end of this medical camp, you had the pastors down in the evangelism tent, and, and uh, they were talking to people, and people just weren't really paying attention. And they, they uh, were each looking out the window at each other. And the pastors said, I, you know, I'm glad that we're able to share this, but people are just coming to see the docs. I just wish I were offering something that people really wanted. And the docs are looking out the window, looking down there, and say, all we're doing is, you know, we're treating aches and pains, and we're deworming people, and they're going to be sick again shortly, and it's just not going to change anything. Um, So they're both wishing that they were the other. So you're sending your texts, and nothing's happening? Another failure of technology. (laughs) It it, uh, doesn't require a refresh. At least the last three times I tried it, it didn't require a refresh page. Trust me, I was logged on an hour ago, and I tested all this, and and it worked. Let's see. Okay. Every 15 minutes. Yeah, that might be it then. I did close the computer and open it. Joy, be good. Mark, you need to keep her under control. <laughs> He's moving away. Yes. Oh, yeah, at least 15 people have voted. Only 15 people have voted. We're going all the way to Australia to do this. That might be why it takes a little longer. (laughs) Not when you see my next slide. Oh, so the votes are already maxed out. So I have over 300 votes. Joy, you've been violating the rules. answer is, the, the real question is, uh, are medical missions an either-or proposition? So raise your hand if you think medicine is an either-or proposition. No hands went up. Okay, that's very good. Um, quoting another uh, person from the past in uh, 1967. There we go. Oh, it's a few people thought otherwise. We had a lot of people who didn't vote. Fifteen people voted. So if you want to keep voting, you can do that, and this will change real time. Um, I'll come back to it in a minute. 
So, Arden Almquist in 1967 talked about this, and he's suggesting that that it's a fallacy to look at medical missions as an either-or proposition, meaning either we deliver high-quality medical, uh, scientific medical care, or we evangelize. He says that's a fallacy. He goes as far as to say that this represents the prostitution of medicine, to use medicine just as a carrot to dangle to get people to come in and listen. Um, Let's see if... Nope, that hasn't changed dramatically. Keep refreshing. So, so uh, why does this why does this really matter? Has anyone been to school in the last oh, 20 years? We can do a show of hand on hands on this one. Okay, there have been a few people who have been to school in the last 20 years. Remember the the uh, holistic medicine, biopsychosocial, spiritual aspect of, of looking at patients. Look at the cultural context of your patient. He, he may not just be looking for a cure for worms or hernia repair or, or a tranquilizer. He may be simultaneously hyponourished. He may be parasitized. He may be detribalized, be excluded from his tribe. He may be sinful. And what he really needs is he needs protein. He needs uh, instruction and hygiene. So there's, there's an educational thing. There's a nutritional thing. He may need some medical care, some surgical care, some dental care. He needs acceptance into a new community. And he needs a savior. So we need to approach each person with this, this um, holistic, um, whole person approach that we've learned in our medical training. And by the way, even the World Health Organization um, advocates. We can't leave some of it behind because we just might not be comfortable with it. I ask patients when they come in often, why do you think you have these particular symptoms? Why are you having this headache? Why do you feel this spasm in your neck that's, that's uh, giving you anxiety? What do you think the cause is? And it is amazingly revealing on what people will come out and tell you. I learned that in medical school a long, long, long ago, long time ago, that if in doubt, not even if in doubt, ask the patient what's wrong with them. We need to get comfortable with treating each person as a patient. We need to understand the cultural dynamics in which the patient lives, and we need to understand the cultural dynamics from which we come. That includes the watch. That includes uncertainty versus certainty. That includes um, uh, community. In African culture, family is emphasized heavily. Man is community. The community includes those who are living, those who are dead, and it includes the divinities. Sickness may be caused by a curse, a visitation of one's... uh, um, by the shade of uh, some neglected relative or one sins. I saw, I saw an 80-year-old um, general, retired general in Ethiopia a few years back who was working as the guard at our, at our uh, hotel who came in with headache, and he was looking a little bit um, <coughs> down in the mouth, looking a little bit depressed. And I asked him why he thought he was having these headaches. 
and what he thought was behind all this. And he said, he said, I am a very bad man. I have killed many people. I have told my subordinates to kill many people. I am very bad. I think God has kept me alive so that I could learn about him. It doesn't get much more obvious than that on how, on what the next sentence should be. He knows the Savior, and he will be with you in glory someday. He understood. He had terrible guilt. Does anyone know a solution to guilt? Let me introduce you to someone who can help with that. The African healer uses supernatural means to effect a cure, though his medicines may be may not be wholly supernatural. They, he may be using some um, remedies that are very much in, in, in accord with uh, scientific medicine, but you need to know that community. Here's a, here's a little community group that I was having about six or seven weeks ago. We did some group therapy outside our, our clinic in, uh, in Moldova. These, these uh, six, one, two, three, four, five, six ladies, six or seven ladies were all... Uh, hypertensive, diabetics, non-compliant with their medications. Um, this kind of sharing of, of intimate medical details is very, is very uh, um, accepted in a collective society such as this. Would be very um, uh, unaccepted in our in our settings in in many settings at least in the U.S. So understanding that aspect of culture and my interpreter, who is sitting right here next to me is the one who suggested it. He was also suggesting it because the line was long. But every one of these, these ladies got um, sufficient attention that they were very much uh, satisfied with, uh, with talking about things. And they will lean on each other to, to, uh, continue, to con- continue the care. So cultural intelligence. Every missionary, every person who is going on missions must be able to lead people to the cross, and then on to victory over sin. The experienced, truly successful cross-cultural medical missionary knows that many of people's woes come from sin of the heart and not the ignorance of the mind. It's much more than just knowledge. It's heart issues. So it's necessary to take time to deal with people's spiritual needs. Someone mentioned, uh, asked a question of me a few months ago. How much time should we spend with each patient? Should we be spending two minutes with each patient, 20 minutes with each patient? Um, She had shared that, uh, as an example, someone mentioned, well, how much time did Christ spend with individual patients when he was feeding the 5,000? How much individual patient savior time um, took place there? Well, who, were, who was Christ's audience when he was feeding the 5,000? When you look at the scriptures, it's 12 guys. It was the disciples. How much time did Christ spend when he was getting that drink of water at the well? How much time did he spend with that lady? Probably an hour or two. We don't know. But it's, it was a lot of focused time. How much did, time did he did he spend when he was um, drawing in the sand with the, uh, adult, the adulteress that the Pharisees had thrown in front of him? He spent just the right amount of time to meet the spiritual need of the moment. So watch, 
goes out the door. It's what does the, what is the spirit telling you to do with this particular patient in front of you? Are you prepared, though, to lead patients to the cross, to lead people to the cross, whether those are patients or whether those are your teammates? Do you have victory over sin in your own life? You're going to need to if you're going to talk to having victory, to others about having victory over sin. Can you lead others to having victory over sin in their lives? So spiritual formation, part one, as I mentioned, team preparation, and I'm not talking about part two. So long-term medical missions involves intentional individual spiritual preparation, language preparation, cultural preparation, and ongoing mentoring when you're out on the field. Missionary sending organizations have a defined process, a defined schedule for managing this. It's not quick. It's not cheap. It's very important because of the commitment. There's psychosocial uh, evaluation. There are lots of other aspects to that. Now, the challenge for those of us who are involved in short-term medical missions is that we rarely have an intensive program of spiritual formation and imparting cultural intelligence. That's because many short-termers are just-in-time participants. They, they have uh, full-time jobs that don't allow a lot of time off or any time off to prepare. So if you're involved in or are considering a short-term medical mission, you need to look hard at what that program has in place for parameters to address that inexperienced short-term worker and to prepare to protect that worker from themselves and to protect nationals from harm from that short-term worker sometimes. It's not that people are, are necessarily malicious or malignant, at least not by intent, usually, but, but there are a lot of uh, good-natured, uh, um, positive intentions that still need to be managed very carefully. What, times, what types of short-term workers do you have? Some of them may be considering long-term service. Some of them may really want to be righteous stewards of the resources that have been entrusted to them by the master. Some of them are, re- are responding to a call to missions of some type, and they're exploring that. Some of them are, advent- are interested in adventure. Some of them are interested in variety, just a change of scenery. Some of them, frankly, are motivated by guilt. But it's difficult to discern motivation. Maybe it's not even possible. I'm still looking for that iPhone app that I can scan and say, okay, this person's really motivated. Uh, You need to go back to your day job. See, we haven't found that app yet. So if you are are, uh, in an agency or looking at an agency, the responsibility exists for all these types of people. Uh, A- Focus, if not the primary focus, with team members should be on their own spiritual formation. Why are they serving? Whom are they serving? How should they serve? What does service mean to them in the long term? And again, those all essential questions. Do they have victory over personal sin? Are they prepared to lead people to the cross? Are they prepared to lead people to victory over sin. How I interact with you, if you're going to come along on a short-term trip with us, depends on my assessment of each of these areas and how accurate my assessment is is going to vary 
uh, quite a bit on how much I'm able to communicate you and how I know you. Now, there are some very unique aspects of short-term service. There is a great, very short article. I recommend short articles in Christianity Today in the summertime in June on page 61 by Robert Priest, who's written a few things on short-term missions, talks about unique aspects of short-term service and that separation from obligations, distractions, and routines of everyday life. Even Pharaoh was supposed to appreciate this in in, uh, Exodus chapter 8, where Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your Lord within the land. But Moses said it's not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go on a three-day journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands. Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. So Pharaoh even said, pray for me. Now, there's a lot more to that story, and, and, uh, and that's just great. But, but this kind of, of uh, separation is similar to pilgrimages, to retreats, to church camps. And what it ought to be is a sustained and communal time of spiritual formation. But when we're doing uh, the kinds of mission trips that we're talking about, it's other-oriented. It places witness and service and human need and relationship with social others at the center of spiritual formation. Your spiritual formation is centered around looking outward. Local projects, if you're doing them in your, in your neighborhood, they, Priest says they, these do not sufficiently cut people off from everyday rhythms and everyday distractions and your iPhone service uh, from commitments of life to serve in this function quite the same way. Let me uh, read something that was given to me after our trip to Moldova that really underscores this. This is from a, uh, <clears throat> from a nurse who's the same age as my son. So she says, Dear Dr. Don Dad, which was all right with me, Thank you for leading me on our amazing journey to Moldova. Thank you for believing in me to do God's work. God spoke to me this trip many times through what you said. I have been challenged and changed during this trip. God has spoken to me in ways he never has before. Maybe I was listening better. I have always thought about my calling, my first calling was as a daughter of Christ, then to be a nurse, and then to work in oncology. The next step is a question, but I'm sure it will be clearer soon. So this is a a result from some time away from the distractions. Not alone. She was not alone. But we focused on things like this. And this, to me, is a very encouraging check in the box of value of this kind of short-term trip. Now, the challenge for the short-term agency and for you as you choose a short-term agency is where will they focus on the scale of spiritual growth and formation? Some 
may take only experienced, spiritually mature workers. If so, how do you know? Again, different iPhone app. Sheep, pre-sheep, goat, <laughs> wolf. I'm, I'm still waiting, still waiting. Um, so how do you know? How will you judge? The other opportunity is to take less experienced or less mature workers. But how do you how do you detect and then how do you mitigate the risks that go with less experience? We at Global Health Outreach have chosen a middle ground. We need a core of of uh, experienced, spiritually mature workers, but we're open to taking first-timers who may not be solid in their faith. They may be chronologically or, or other, in other ways less mature, college students, high school students, sometimes middle school students. We have team leaders that are trained in working pre-trip and during the trip to assess and to deepen each team member's spiritual maturity. And our team leaders are alert to early signs of problems developing on the trip. And then they're prepared to put out these little smoldering fires, little sparks before they start. Now, I want to give you a a relatively abbreviated version of of one of the things that we do. I've got ten minutes. I will take most of them. And... And uh, this is something that if you're, in, if you're in medicine and working in a hospital or a clinic setting, talks about disruptive physicians. Sorry, it's usually disruptive surgeons, isn't it? Um, I'm not a surgeon. I'm a family practice doc. So. But disruptive team member. Um, so here's where my wolf hunting comes in. Team unity is absolutely key in spiritual formation. We're, we're told in Proverbs 21:21 to hunt, to pursue righteousness, to pursue loyalty. And then Proverbs says that we will find life, we will find righteousness, and we will find honor. So we have different kinds of folks on our teams. We have sheep. Acts 20:28 20, says, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. So you will have sheep. First Peter 5.2, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. There will be pre-sheep. And not, uh, not trying to compromise the, the ability of the Holy Spirit to call at, in any setting, John 6.44, though, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There are goats. Matthew 25 talks about the Son of Man coming in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then there are wolves. Back to Acts 20, 28. Um, I know, Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves 
Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after them. So, so our tasks, whether on, when we're leading and when you're on a team, are to feed and protect the sheep, to provide an atmosphere consistent for these pre-sheep to respond to the Father's drawing. And for goats, if you look back at Matthew 13, that's the parable that Christ said about the wheat and the tares. I'm equating the tares with the goats, where the ministry is supposed to go on despite the presence of the, the tares. You don't pull them out because you might pull wheat out. But these are, these are weeds, tares that have been sown by the enemy to distract the, the, uh, uh, the uh, harvest. And then with apologies to uh, Mark Driscoll in Seattle, he says we're to shoot the wolves. We're supposed to take steps to get them off, to get them out. So, so what do you need? You need an environment that is a safe environment for growth. And how do you do that? Well, what we do is we use sheepdogs. We have other people on the team who act as sentries, who, who build relationships with with people, if I have people who I know are experienced and people who aren't, then I will overtly and covertly pair them so that uh, uh, so that I have my sheepdogs out there as early warnings. And then they come, and the sheepdog will come and chew on my leg and let me know that something needs to be done. One of my favorite sheepdogs is sitting right there with a yellow <laughs> hiding behind her iPad. Yes. Um, Key is is cooperation and team unity. Remember uh, remember what we discussed earlier. A unique aspect of short-term service is is that cooperation, is that team unity, because you're going away for a period of spiritual formation. Um, Witness in the setting in which you practice. I have a, a letter that I want to read to you. This is... I don't know how your Russian is. Um, mine fails, so I'm going to use a translation. I am a resident of Grigoriopol. My name is such and such. From the bottom of my heart, I am grateful to God for the team of doctors from America that came here to help us with medicines, glasses, and, of course, to share nice words. I thank God for the United States where, and Canada where such kind and merciful people live. In spite of the long distance, they found time and money to come here. This is only because of our almighty God that can do such miracles. Glory to him for this. So the witness in the area where we, where we practice is very, very important. Um, culturally appropriate care is, is, uh, is essential. I had a patient who said, I won't share this with our doctors but I will ask you about it. And she was sharing some, some uh, concerns with uh, stress incontinence, and it was a simple matter of training her in Kegel exercises, not in surgery. She didn't want surgery. She knew that that's what she would get uh, recommended from the local docs. And then, again, we, we watch for, early, for first signs of problems. Now, why does this, uh, why does this happen? Well, it's happened, these kind of things happen within the team because we are imperfect, but we're trying to serve as best we can. Team members are out of their comfort zones and their power zones, and that's very intentional on our part. 
because that's where the growth tends to take place. They're less experienced, they're apprehensive, they're self-conscious, they're jet-lagged, they're sleep-deprived, working across language barriers, working across cultural barriers, um, unmet expectations. It's just a setup for challenge after challenge after challenge, and it is loads of fun. Wouldn't you agree? This, I mean, if you want routine, you can just go back to work and work in your daily setting with your charting and with your chart reviews and with your insurance payers. This is really fun. It gets, if whether you're on the team or whether you're leading the team, this will challenge you and the growth will be huge. The deceiver would like to take advantage of any one or all of these to foment dissent and discouragement to hamper sharing of the gospel. How does this present? Well, it can present by withdrawal, by isolation. This is one reason we have twice-a-day team meetings that are mandatory because I'd like to have eyes on everyone. If somebody is going back and hiding in their bunk, then that's a little bit of a red flag. Maybe I just need to change my presentation style, but at least it's a red flag. When people get frustrated, when there's some tensions between different uh, people on the team, when people regress into their churn and burn, um, work faster, minute and a half a patient, had a little chat with somebody about that once, inappropriate language, um, yelling, gossip. I heard from a, someone in another setting where, where he was doing some maxillofacial surgeon in an OR in another country, and, and um, they had a guy who caught the machete just below his nose, above his mouth, and, and had some pretty significant uh, um, hemisection on most of his head. It wasn't so severe that they couldn't fix him, and the surgeon, the oral maxillofacial surgeon, had fixed most of the deeper stuff, and all that had to be done was closing the skin. And there was an American... Doc, an American surgeon who was closing one side, and then a local national doc resident who was closing the other side of the skin. And they both started, and the American doc did not like the quality of sewing that the national doc was doing. And he chewed her out up one side and down the other in the OR. And didn't. And then when the other guy came back in and said, I think maybe I need to finish this closing, why don't you go take a break? And he talked to him afterward at a little come to Jesus talk, and the guy didn't even realize that what he was doing just might have not been the most appropriate behavior in that setting. That's pretty obvious. But there are a whole lot of others. Physical boundary violations, um, facial expressions, other mannerisms. So lots of different, different early warning signs. Consequences, compromised witness with everybody within the team, with your patients, with your national partner, undermines morale, diminished productivity, diminished quality of care, um, distress in the work environment. You've, you've heard all of these back in your, in your day-to-day uh, settings. Even more of them, bad uh, uh, collaboration and communication within the team, um, burnout and depression, long-term just lots of uh, all kinds of negative things. So what do we do? We focus pre-trip on, on two main um, issues, is getting to know our individual team members and then by having um, meetings by teleconference, by webinar, 
Um, if, if, most of, if many members of our team are coming from one geographic area, then, of course, we get together that way. But we really emphasize the importance of team, of team unity and, um, and then ask people to be, to be on the alert for early signs of, of disunity. Now, the challenge is you've got to allow for individual personality variation, which isn't real good for me. But uh, my wife keeps telling me that some people are different than me, I'm not the model, and I make progress. Now, she won't go on trips with me, though, so... Be alert to red flags, whether that's in conversation, whether that's on email. And then during the trip, really being proactive. Buddy systems, sheepdogs, overt and covert. Um, continual reminders about why we're here. We talk about that very extensively before we ever go, which makes it easy to remind people on the trip. Now, remember why we're here. We're serving our national partner so that we can um, – build disciples, make disciples, and we can facilitate their disciple-making efforts. Lots of attitude checks, um, lots of breaks. I've gone in and some, one of my sheepdogs let me know that somebody was getting a little bit tired and I was running the pharmacy. I was working out in the pharmacy that time, so I, I went in and to this doc and said, I need help out in the pharmacy. Could you take care of that for me and I'll fill in for you here. And we both knew what we were saying. It was a face-saving way of giving him a bit of a break so he could go outside and work in the 100-degree pharmacy instead of the 110-degree tent. Um, Taking a day off. Now there are pros and cons to that, but sometimes just having a little bit of extra rest. And then you may send somebody home. That's happened a few times. The bottom line, early involvement, managing expectations, reduces the occurrence of many disruptions, and then it lays the foundation for making those hard decisions if and when they do come. So what do we need to do? We need to be more deliberate in our missions efforts. We need to have a set of goals for the medical missionary, for those who go. We need to have a set of goals for the recipient of our care. Both require careful planning that is very well integrated. Now, we've been given the responsibility to do this. We've also been given the tools to figure out how to do this. We can juggle these tasks. Sometimes they seem to be competing, but we have to carry out this responsibility with fear and trembling, but we have to carry out those, that responsibility. So questions, comments? Remember, if there's anything wrong, my name is Ron Brown. I got a question. I got a question. Yes, sir. Um, just like on short-term mission trips, it always seems like there's a bunch of logistics getting the team together and everything. The first 24 hours before you go on a trip and the first 12 hours of a trip is a lot of supplies and a lot of connecting and airport airplanes and everything like that. And then we finally get there and feels like the, the mentality of the team is not spiritual. Um, how would you suggest you begin a team so that everybody has a spiritual understanding? There, so that, what, are, what are some ideas for that? Um, I would extend that 24 hours to about four months. <laughs> we, we, are, we rarely do a team without about six months lead on it. We have the logistics of everything – 
I think Brenda just left because she's getting ready to ship a team out three months from now. Joy, your team is in January 25th. Are you done? January 12th. Are you finished with all the logistics yet? But they're going to be finished with a lot of the logistics issues six weeks out because the, t- the country requires uh, all the notification to get through customs of that stuff. We do things so much farther in, in advance. It's always crazy going in. I consider it a success if about 98% of the team members arrive in country when they're supposed to, and they don't. Flights get changed. We had a team that's coming back from Nepal today or tomorrow that went out right after Sandy came right up the East Coast. So uh, I had two people who joined our team in Moldova a day late because there were thunderstorms that shut down the airport they were leaving. So we start very far in advance. Um, It's always crazy that first 24 hours. I have very low expectations for what we're going to do. We, We don't overdo the travel and the setup on those on those first two days. We often go in country on a Saturday planning on being at our ministry site Saturday night so that we have a more relaxed time on Sunday to set up. You arrive Sunday night and you're going to work Monday morning. That's, that's uh, um, one of the – it's not a recipe for disaster, but that makes it much harder. The first day in the, in the, when you're actually doing care is always chaotic, low threshold – I mean low expectations – I tell people this is just a matter of figuring things out. You'll be, you'll be much better, much more ready to talk about spiritual issues on the first evening after, after doing clinic than the night before. That happened in, in, on one of the teams. Our national partner said, because I, I let people go, you know, we, we ate at about 6 or 6.30, and by 7.30, 7.45, they were on their way to bed. And National partner said, well, why did you knock things off so early? Well, you hear the anxiety around the team. It wasn't bad anxiety, but it was the pre-show jitters, as it were. And I said, watch tomorrow night. It will be dramatically different, and it was. So we have low expectations for that first team. We really focus on set up in advance and, and then be reasonable, the team leader, for that first 24 hours and give people a little bit more time to rest and, and get acclimated. Any other questions? Yeah. Sir? Do you do a dry run in country before you go? The question was, do we do a dry run in country? We tend to go to similar sites year after year after year. Our first um, trip, two of these you'll see, three of these you see new sites. HT is human trafficking. Um, these are going to be um, small teams, maybe 10 people. If, if our typical team to one of these first two countries might be 25 people eventually. The first team will be 10, and it will all be experienced people who have been on our teams multiple times. Many times it will be a bunch of team leaders so that they don't require nearly the degree of hand-holding from me that, that uh, they, they would if it were, if it were new folks. Um, sometimes our site survey is just one or two people going and, and walking through the different issues, which is expensive in time and money, but it's a bit of a dry run. So, yeah, we do a dry run by, like, having a half a team and having it much more experienced. Do you do a stateside dry run? Stateside dry run? I don't think we ever have. No, 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 but we, we do about 50 teams a year, so we've, we've been around the track a few times.
Well, the pros of a day off, if someone is getting stressed out, is that they get to sit back and relax a little bit. And then one individual, if they're really getting stressed. The con is that this person is alone back at the hotel, and, and if they're having a tough time adapting, I'd rather them be out with the team. I've had, you know, I, we, when somebody's puking their guts out, then sometimes I, I give them a little bit of a break and let them stay back in bed for the day. Sometimes we leave somebody behind with them. It depends on how sick they are, what the reason is. I would rather have them come out or maybe take sleep in and come out a few hours later. It really depends on the, on the setting. Uh, completely individualized variation there, though. It's all right. Last question from you. Wolf abatement is uh, we had an hour and a half panel discussion at our last team leader training last December where where people got onto the team, somebody got onto the team and had um, not been honest in what she filled out. She had not been taking her antipsychotics for six months because she was using herbal remedies. That's uh, a little bit of a challenge. She went home. We've had some others who had agreed to do certain things, had agreed to certain behaviors and had had uh, changed completely when they were out in the team set in the uh, team setting and the team leader said you know you got two choices you can go by what you agreed to do when we talked on the phone or you can go home and he chose to go home uh, other questions from the few of you who are remaining okay I'll be around my emails there and we're thank you and we're in the uh, in the exhibit hall. We're all over the exhibit hall.